Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Maddie Moon with episode two of Mind Body Musings, the podcast where you can learn the most intricate details about the body, the mind, and how lifestyle choices link the two to create individual health for every shape and size. Today, I have a guest that's challenging chronic dieters, low carbers, and obsessive calorie counters to regain their health and food freedom by improving both their physical and mental health. If any of you have been keeping up with my blog, you may have read the review I wrote on Diet Recovery by Matt Stone. Well, today I have the pleasure to talk with Matt about all the subjects I covered in that review, which you can find in the link to the podcast post on moonfitness.net. Matt is the author of more than 15 ebooks, as well as the creator of the website 180 Degree Health, where he teaches people how to increase their metabolism by enjoying commonly forbidden foods. After working with Matt, thousands of people have reported improvements in different disorders such as hair loss, low libido, constipation, acid reflux, insomnia, anxiety, cold hands and feet, allergies, skin conditions, and countless others, all while eating the foods they love. So without further ado, welcome, Matt. Hello, Maddie Moon. (laughs) How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. You got me like after many hours of phone calls, so I'm, I'm, I might be a little brain dead, but I'll, I'll try to keep it together. <laughs> I would be Skyped out if I were you. <laughs> That's right. I'm a Skypeitarian these days. I like use Skype almost exclusively. So Goodness. You have to be like a certain kind of people person to be able to do that all day long. I, so just one day a week, I try to really oh. consolidate it so I don't have to like have phone calls at certain times hanging over my head all week long. So you just condense it all into one day? I just get it all done with, like a tearing off the Band-Aid. Good so. for you. Awesome. Well, um, first of all, I just want to say that after I wrote that re- uh, review on diet recovery on my website, I don't think I've ever received so many messages and emails and questions and comments from people just asking me, like, what is this all about? I've never heard of this before, but it's like the thing I've been waiting for. I mean, it's just, it's crazy how many people were messaging me asking more, like, about how they can actually eat the foods they love and uh, increase their metabolism and actually be healthy. Well, that's, you know, I I get a lot of response. I mean, what I say is pretty controversial because it's not the standard, you know, suffer, the more you suffer, the healthier you're going to be and the better you're going to look kind of Mm -hmm. general health information. It's more of the easy approach and, hey, guys, it really doesn't have to be this hard. And by working really hard to be healthy, you might be actually screwing yourself up, surprisingly. So, that's kind of where I come from, and yeah, I get a lot of positive and negative feedback from lots of people because of that, and uh, hopefully most of them weren't too nasty. <laughs> yeah, so can you just explain a little bit what diet recovery and eat for heat is, like the general protocol you go through to increase your metabolism? Yeah, yeah, I'll uh, describe that. Before I, before I go on, I will say I'm so controversial that my last interview I did with someone was was banned. No. <laughs> it was, it was, really? It was yeah, it was recorded as as part of some organization and it's more than one person involved in the organization. And one of the people in the organization found my information and had, you know, great results with it, really turned her life around and thought I was great and wanted to share, you know, me with all the people that, you know, are part of her organization that suffer from various health problems and yeah, we did an interview and the other people revolted and took it down. <laughs> so, <laughs> they revolted because it was what, like different from what they believe, or just 
that that's it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, a lot of people have very black and white opinions about things. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody has a way of investigating health and nutrition matters. Um, some people are very by the book. Some people aren't. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it was interesting, but anyways, uh, <laughs> I, I will describe, I will describe the, uh, the basic program. I mean, basically I'll, I'll tell a little bit of my story. So it gives people a little bit of context for how I came to these conclusions and who I am. Yeah. But, you know, basically I started out like a lot of people, I was really inspired about health. I saw that people in you know, 21st century America's health was not very good and, you know, I was really inspired to help people out. I was a sick kid and, you know, I was always medicated for all different kinds of things. And I really wanted to break free from that. I tried to ditch the medication and let my body take care of itself and developed a little bit more of that sort of, I don't know, holistic type of mindset. And so I went out and, and started doing a lot of health research with this idea that, that I was going to find the answer and that I was going to help people get fired up about cutting all the high fructose corn syrup out of their diets and, you know, ditch the junk food and stop eating fast food and clean up your diet. And that was where I was coming from. You know, I I really thought that I could help people give them the frame of mind, the state of mind that they needed to obtain this amazing, miraculous health by eating clean and getting outside and exercising and otherwise living a healthy life. So I started out with that. And I just wanted to go and tell everybody all about this. And I started writing about all this geeky health and nutrition stuff on the internet when I started a blog to you know, save the world from high fructose corn syrup and excessive Mountain Dew consumption or whatever. And the people who were finding me were people who were obsessed with health and nutrition because people who were hanging out drinking Mountain Dew by the case, they're not going around doing Google searches about health and nutrition related matters. So what happened is all these health and nutrition and fitness-obsessed individuals started to find me, and then more started to find me, and then all of a sudden 5,000 a day started to find me. And so I had this very uh, big web presence with a lot of people coming to my website, and very quickly it it started to be obvious that the people finding me didn't need, need to hear about how evil this junk food was because they hadn't touched it in 10 years and they're ter- terrified to death to even eat it. It was obvious that A, I needed to adapt my information for what they really needed to hear, which is, hey man, um, you know, you probably need to lighten up a little bit. It's, it's okay to eat Thanksgiving with your family and not pack your own <laughs> food containers <laughs> to the dinner table and Things like that. And, you know, that's obviously that's one just silly example. But ultimately what was going on is, you know, we're dealing with a lot of health and nutrition obsessives. And we're in an interesting age when information is just exploding. I mean, we already had too much information. And then now that we have the Internet, it's just absolutely off the hook. And so people are out there just, you know, brain candy all over the Internet for people who are into health and nutrition. What happens is that people are getting all these ideas about how much they should eat, when they should eat, how much they should drink, when they should drink, how much sleep they should get, when they should sleep, how much exercise, what type, what duration, what frequency, what, you know, everything, right? So you get all these ideas about what you should do intellectually, and then you try to apply those intellectual ideas, and in the process, 
you completely shut down any instincts that you might have for regulating this stuff automatically. Obviously, every creature on the face of the earth doesn't know anything about any nutritional matters. We're the only species on earth that has any idea what a carbohydrate is or protein or any of these other constituents that are in food. And they can manage their health and their body systems perfectly well. If they get thirsty, they drink. If they get hungry, they eat. If they get tired, they sleep. If they feel like running around and playing, they run around and play. And that's just what it's like. Now, obviously, the the modern world is full of a lot of perils. We know that the modern environment and diet and all these things are not the healthiest. I'll admit that wholeheartedly. But instinct is very powerful, and these instincts are (laughs) thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years old. And they're very fine-tuned. They work incredibly well for every creature on Earth, including us. And even though our modern diet and lifestyle and all that stuff is not the best, when you start to get too many ideas and you let it interfere too much with your instincts, you run into some real dangers. And so a lot of my programs are about helping people to reconnect with that a little bit, um, identifying very simple, fundamental, basic ways in which their health is being negatively impacted by some of the diets that they've been doing or exercise programs or you know, drinking too, many, too much water, too many smoothies or whatever, whatever it might be that they've thought was a good idea and latched onto because of something they read or heard from some guru or even heard on the news or heard from their doctor, wherever they heard it from. They got an idea. They took it and run with it. And what happens is, you know, really basic systems start to decline whenever you do anything that goes against your physiology. And usually the first thing that goes is the metabolic rate starts to go down. You start to get cold and you start to get drier skin and your libido falls, your sleep suffers, you know, digestion gets weird. Maybe you start to get a little bit more constipated, a little more bloated after you eat, a little more indigestion. Maybe your mood starts to become a little erratic and unstable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So once you make an assessment of all these things, also the biggest one and something I focused on the most over the years is body temperature. So when the body's trying to conserve energy and the metabolism goes down, the first thing it does is lower the thermostat. Just like a human who doesn't have much money in the wintertime, first thing they're going to do to save money is turn down the thermostat. Well, same thing in the human body. And you see temperatures fall from the typical normal 98.6 to 98 to 97.5. You know, I talk to people in the 92s. Okay, so people are, I would say the most common people I talk to are in the 96s and 97s. And their body temperature is reduced. They notice some of the symptoms of metabolism being reduced. Metabolism is really the energy production system of the entire body. It's what drives energy. And energy is what drives the function of all the systems, reproductive, respiratory, um, digestive, et cetera, et cetera, cardiopulmonary, et cetera. So anything and everything can break down and start to falter when energy, which is the driving substance that keeps these systems going, starts to starts to fail. So anyway, I know I'm talking a lot. Long story short is you really have to look at how your body functions. And if you see that your metabolism is low and you have some of those other con- you know, signs and symptoms that are congruent with a low metabolism, low libido, dry skin, cold hands and feet, feeling really cold all the time, constipation, etc., you can really see that what you're doing is not working and that your body, no matter how healthy you're eating, you could be eating the perfect diet 
by what you've decided intellectually is the perfect diet, but what matters is the result. What matters, are you functioning properly? And with all those assessment tools, really basic fundamental assessment tools, people can look at that and see, am I functioning well? And my program and my information and all that stuff is all about how do we fix that and get people functioning optimally with a high libido and deep sleep and great stable mood and warm hands and feet and lots of energy and free flowing bowels and you know all those different kinds of things in all those different areas. I'm just listing a short list of, of different things that are connected to metabolism. So we're looking at real basic fundamentals, how to improve those, how to get the body temperature back up, the metabolism up again, how to get the energy production in your mitochondria and your cells up again to fuel all these different functions of all the systems. And that's what my information, such as Eat for Heat and Diet Recovery, is all about in a nutshell. So, I feel like when I first stumbled upon like finding your books, that was probably when I needed to read that kind of stuff the most. I... I mean, I just finished my second bodybuilding show, and I, can't, I just, I when I think about the time that I, I mean, I was a vegetarian, and I'm not saying like that's the key to being healthy, but before I discovered what clean eating is, that's what I was doing, and I was still eating. I mean, I was very happy, and I was not bloated, and I could have alcohol, and I had great digestion. I had uh, my brain function felt great, but I was still eating like. Mexican food once a week and Diet Cokes when I really felt like it. And I'm, I'm not saying that's like the best thing in the world, but I had a lot more freedom well, with my food choices and I took advantage of that and I had no bad, like anything. I mean, I felt great all the time. And then once I started clean eating and um, I, I only saw food as carb, fat, protein. I didn't see oh, that's a delicious meal of chicken and sweet potatoes piled on top of sautéed green beans. I saw just, you know, the three macronutrients and that's all. And I knew exactly how they were going to be absorbed in my system. I knew exactly what time I needed to eat them. You know, the meal timings, the, the calorie counting, the meal planning. And slowly, I just started getting more tired. But in my head, I was like, this is not possible. I'm eating clean. Like, there's just no way. I should probably work out harder. I should probably sleep less and go to the gym and do more hit or like sprints, whatever. And I just, the thing that I noticed the most when I started eating extremely clean and allowing myself maybe one cheat meal every four months was I was bloated like all the time. And since this is mind body musings, I had to put in that like my mind body relationship with bloating, like my mind just, goes crazy. It's all I think about when I'm really bloated. And I think that's the case for a lot of women. So when I stumbled upon your books and saw that bloating is like a sign of low metabolism as well as cold hands and feet, which is what I have as well, everything kind of just started to click. And I think that's probably what happens with a lot of people that come to your website and read all this th- all these things because we're all so sucked into the clean eating train and it just goes way overboard right well you know that that's a pretty good assessment going overboard is definitely a very common thing there's a lot of type a perfectionist type of people out there wandering around they get this idea that it's really good and virtuous to exercise a lot and eat as little as possible obviously the entire society that we live in believes that the more you exercise and the less you eat 
the more awesome you're going to be. You're, you're going to look great and feel great and live forever. And, you know, that's obviously, it's not quite so simple. And so, anyway, a lot of people are really overdoing it. And that's, again, the people who are really exuberant and enthusiastic about health and nutrition are the people who find me on the Internet and find you on the Internet and whoever else who's talking about this kind of stuff. It's not the people who need to hear that you need to exercise more and eat more nutritious foods that are finding that information. It's the people who are obsessed and you know, often the people that are obsessed are eating like a machine. They're not like you were eating. Mm-hmm. It's like you were filling up a gas tank, not a human being with food. And you lose a lot of that connection. You lose a lot of the connection with the enjoyment of food, the sort of multi-sensory enjoyment of the experience. You start to lose connection with what you feel like eating and what you're in the mood for. And Ultimately, all those different roads of clean eating and eating for intellectual reasons instead of eating with a little bit more of a recreational intent to it usually just ends up in inadequate calorie consumption. The food isn't as palatable. It doesn't taste as good. It's not as calorie dense. uh, It's more filling. All the things that we hear are the virtues of health food. If you take it too far and you're exercising your little brains out, while you're taking it too far and your nutrition is too rigid, it's very, very common to get into a situation where you're simply just not eating enough calories. So, so yes, there's obviously people in, in society that are probably sitting, either sitting or lying down 23 hours a day. And they're guzzling, you know, giant kegs of beverages of various kinds and eating fast food with which is very calorie dense and all, all these different things and it and it's a bad thing mm-hmm. there's no doubt about it but then there's the other extreme so you know the big problem in, for most people is the calorie deficit the shortage of energy you cannot have a properly functioning metabolism without supplying the the fuel that fuels the metabolism, which is calories or energy. So <clears throat> there's so many people out there who just don't understand that trying harder is not the answer to fixing the problems that they've run into by trying really hard to be healthy and fit. Sometimes people just need a real strong surge of calories, and it's the number one priority above all other things. And the only way to get those calories is in is to eat food that's fun to eat and tastes good and is calorie-dense and is all the things that we hear are horrible things. You know, of course, I'm talking about just common calorie-dense, enjoyable foods like going out to a restaurant, maybe eating pizza or cheeseburger, maybe even having a slice of pie or cheesecake or dessert or a bowl of ice cream. Common things that you <laughs> we were all raised on. So that, that's kind of what I'm getting at is that that's why it's all relative. And people hear me saying, oh, you probably need to lighten up and Here's a, here's a classic example. I talked to one of the people I, I spoke with last week. She's 31 years old. She hasn't had a menstrual cycle since she was 17. Oh, my God. Okay? She's been suffering with an eating disorder throughout all this time, trying to eat healthy, trying to eat less. Weight goes up. She panics, loses it, You know, runs into trouble, goes to the hospital, gets fed. Weight goes back up again. I mean, just repeated cycles over and over again. And I told her, I said, 
she had, she had heard that often I give women, especially with eating disorder type of problems, I often give assignments. You know, do this this week. I'll talk to you next week. And she said, well, can, can I get an assignment? I said, yeah, why don't you go to McDonald's? She's, ah, I was afraid you were going to say that. And, of course, McDonald's is the iconic, horrible, worst food in the world for you, killing everyone on the planet, making them die of ob- obesity and diabetes, et cetera. So it's the scariest place. And she went there on Monday and Thursday, had her first menstrual cycle since she was 17 years old. And that's what I'm saying when it's all relative. I had another kid, for example. Here's another great example. It's one of my favorite stories. His mom, like many of us, health fanatic. And she was feeding him nothing but quinoa and avocado and all these really, really healthy foods by our modern definition. But he was obviously not very into the food that she was feeding him. And he was wasting away. He was underweight and he, he had severe low platelet disorders that was causing him to bleed a lot. So he'd have nosebleeds and he'd lose so much blood that it would act, you know, it was life-threatening and severe anemia and all these other things, basically from not eating because, oh, you're hungry? Here, have some more quinoa and avocado. It's, it's like seven years old, right? So wow. I hear the mom talking about, what, I asked her what the, his favorite foods were, and she said, well, he likes avocado. And as soon as she said that, I was like, oh, I know exactly what the problem is. This kid just needs to eat food that he enjoys. And um, so I, I said, what's his favorite food, you know, like historically that he just really loves? Well, he likes ice cream. I give it to him. Give him some ice cream. So this kid, they get him. I'm like, every time he wants ice cream, just give him ice cream. So she's giving him ice cream, giving him ice cream. This platelet condition clears up immediately. I mean, they go back three weeks later. His platelet counts have like doubled. He's not bleeding anymore. He feels way better. Um, and before I wrap up the story... A few weeks later, or maybe a couple months later, they said that he had, he had backslid a little bit. They said, well, we're giving him ice cream and stuff like that, but it doesn't seem to still be working anymore. And the problem was that even though ice cream is great, if you're just getting fed ice cream and ice cream and ice cream and ice cream, it gets really boring and disgusting and redundant and monotonous. Mm-hmm. So even that was, it's all relative. It's not like ice cream had some magical property. This kid needed calories and when he, when ice cream was tasty and it was being withheld from him and he finally started eating it again, he started growing and just recuperated. And then they just weren't really paying attention to what he wanted to eat. So it, they started feeding him peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and all these other things that he wanted, macaroni and cheese and stuff besides just this one magical food that they'd cling to and ice cream. And he started recovering again because all he really needed all he really needed. He was getting, you know, crazy medical diagnoses. And, you know, if you have low platelet counts, they, they peg you for autoimmune problems and start talking about removing your spleen and all this kind of stuff. So all, all, he, needed was, all he needed was calories. So I, I run into these problems all the time. Um, simple problems, easy to fix. But people are not able to sort of identify those things because they're scared that those foods are unhealthy. And that's, it's all relative. Ice cream can be medicinal or it can be poison. It just depends on who you are, where you're at in life. 
all those different factors. And that's why we can't look at nutrition in a black and white, this food is good for you, this food is bad for you kind of way. Uh, we can't look at it in a, we, in, in a, we need this X number amount of ounces of fluids every day kind of thing because every day is different. You eat different amount of food, different amounts of salt. The food you eat has different water content. There's different air temperature. You do different amounts of exercise. And people are handing out these set prescriptions to drink eight, eight-ounce glasses of water a day. Like, like every day is the same and every person's the same. And every, there, there's so many different variables and ultimately there's so many that that's why I keep using the word instinct and trying to bring people back there because we have the mechanisms that can regulate these things. And most people just need to turn over the reins and for many people who are health and nutrition fanatics who are starving with a low metabolism, you know, face first into some ice cream is exactly what they want to do because the body is not stupid. It wants calories and calorie-dense foods and it will go berserk once you start feeding yourself those foods until you've had enough and you restore your metabolism and then you become completely and utterly disinterested in foods like that. So anyway, going off on more tangents mm -hmm. like I do, but I know you got a lot more questions for me. So, Well, um, on that topic, I, I just want to ask, like when you're first starting out something like this, like I know a lot of people who just do completely lose that intuitive eating process. I mean, that's happened to me. I'm still working my way out of it, to be completely honest. I just, being hungry and knowing when I'm full, it's kind of, it's sad, but it's kind of an art. Um, it shouldn't be an art, but it is for it is for a lot of people who completely lost sight of it and have to relearn. And I, I mean, it's kind of scary at first to read that, I mean, eating ice cream might be what you need or eating a, a cheeseburger. And it's kind of like, do you let do you let yourself just eat what you feel like eating when you're first starting out and then for the rest of life or should you start kind of slowly cuz whenever I first read this I was like oh man I need to ease my way into doing something like this I can't just go full force because like my mind I'm thinking like when I'm bulking I got to ease my way up the carbs you know so I had some questions like that when people read my review I mean can you just go right in and then just eat whatever you feel like eating, the foods you've been missing? Or will, will that make trade one disorder for another by gaining too much weight and then obsessing over that? Well, a lot of my research is based on, and, and of course, I, I figured this out and then did research on starvation and just saw it, a lot of confirmation in what I believe because I've experienced starvation myself and what it feels like to not have enough calories and Everything shutting down, and um, when I actually read all this fourteen hundred page book on starvation called "The Biology of Human Starvation," you start to really see a, a lot of important things. Uh, one of those things is what happens when you starve someone. What happens after you've starved them? And they studied uh, thirty-two men, monitored every single activity in the, <laughs> the basement under the gym at the University of Minnesota back in the 1940s. And what they did is they starved these guys for 24 weeks, and then afterwards they went through a process of refeeding. And what happened is if they let the guys eat as much, they had four different groups. One group was just told at the end of 24 weeks, okay, you're done, eat whatever you like. And, of course, they ate and just an incredible amount of food. As soon as they started eating, they just ate and ate and ate and ate themselves to the point where they were so uncomfortably full 
that they couldn't eat another bite, but they were still hungry and still wanted to eat more, even though they, they didn't even have the capacity in their stomachs for it. So it's just like if you hold your breath. If you hold it long enough, you're going to hyperventilate to make up for the deficit. So, you know, it's, it's referred to in, in obesity literature as being rebound hyperphagia, which means phagia means appetite. So it's like, you know, rebound high appetite. Do you experience after you've had a deficit for a long period of time? So if you obey that, if you just you know say, "Oh, screw it, I'm just going to eat and follow my appetite," you're you're likely to experience an appetite that is really extreme, and you're likely to gain weight quickly. These guys, um, let me think. I think they had restored all the they had surpassed their original waist circumference before the 24 weeks of starvation. I believe in 12 weeks. So it took them 24 weeks to lose it, 12 weeks to regain it, plus extra. And then they went on to get up to where they were about 40% fatter than they were at the beginning before the calorie restriction period of 24 weeks. And that occurred at week 33. And then after week 33, from week 33 to week 58, which of course we're talking about a long period of time here, they lost all that excess body fat to where they finally got back to where they started. So just like when you diet, you lose weight, then you gain it all back and plus some when you fall off the wagon. Here you fall off the wagon, you gain weight plus some, and then you lose weight and often plus some on the weight loss side once you fully recover and go through this process. that It's a big adventure. It's probably a one to two year process to take fully to completion for people who are really in severe shape. Um, age is a huge factor though. For teenagers, it's probably six months max. They resolve the whole thing. Once you get in your 20s, it's more like a year. Then you get past that, and you're looking at probably over a year to go through that whole cycle. But uh, it, it is possible to eat as much food as you like and follow your instincts and have your weight regulate itself. What most people are doing is following their instincts for a while, gaining weight, and then they panic, and then they diet, and they keep repeating these cycles over and over again and ratcheting their weight set point up over years and decades. People ask me all the time, well, if, you know, how, why does this work? What, won't you just become obese? Isn't that what causes everyone to be obese, just eating whatever they want? And there's so much more to that. And dieting itself and trying to control your, your calorie intake is a risk factor for obesity. In fact, one, one organization made the statement that it, it is the single greatest predictor of future weight gain is dieting. <laughs> so, yes, you, you can try to do it slowly, but what happens is that most people will find that when they start eating again, it, I mean, their biology just takes over and they experience breathtaking breathtakingly large appetite and I think it's best to just get it over with it's horrifying to gain weight especially for people who've been obsessed with keeping their weight down for years for them to just go and gain weight it's mm -hmm. really scary and I think it's important to to basically complete that process restore your metabolism restore your health restore all your lean mass restore proper function of everything all your sex hormones come back everything's hunky-dory um, it's best to just get that over with. And then from that point, you're eating as much as you like. You're not forcing a calorie deficit with forced exercise, and you're maintaining your weight. 
you're not gaining any more weight. And that's a good place to be. And I think that I call that step one. I call that fat proofing yourself. And that's what I like. You know, that's kind of what I like to see people go through that, where they're not having to battle themselves and battle against their instincts to maintain weight. They get to do they get to the point where they can do that effortlessly. And that is a possibility, a realistic possibility for a large percentage of people, much more than they much larger percentage percentage of people than than they think. Especially young people. I mean, almost every young person can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and from what I've seen from a lot of the testimonies on your website and things that will um, that you'll post, a lot of people will gain some weight, but they feel so good that they don't even care. Well, it's just become so obvious that what you're doing is is healthy. Mm-hmm. Again, we're, we're we're told that it's unhealthy to gain weight, and well, to some extent, that's true. But again, it all depends on context. It's like telling that kid who is practically starving to death on quinoa and avocados that it's, oh, you don't want to gain fat. Gaining fat is unhealthy. It increases your rate of diabetes. And that's just not an appropriate statement. It's like telling a starving person to watch out for obesity. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in that context, gaining weight, raising your metabolism, getting everything functioning properly again. I mean, it's, it's dramatic. It's, you don't need any proof that it's good for you because you have more than you could ever need. Nine, nine out of, you know, at least nine out of ten people experience all those rises in metabolism when they experience all those good things happening along with it. And then everybody, of course, says, well, you know, how do I get the weight off? And, and you know, I'm finding that it's just it's a long-term kind of thing, just like with the 20 something year old males that took them 58 weeks. I guess it was like um, about eight months after they, re- they had reached their peak body weight before their weight had come off. And that's for males in their 20s. So it just takes a long time before that resolves itself. Now, of course, if your standard of leanness is, you know, six packs, super lean, we're well, always going to have to depend upon permanent starvation, most people will at least permanently starve themselves to maintain that level of leanness. We're talking about just normal body composition. Mm-hmm. You know, that maybe 15% body fat for males and, you know, 22% body fat for females or whatever is sort of normal, the sort of normal body composition that people have when they're not struggling really hard against their physiology to be leaner than that. So what are your thoughts about low carb, especially being paleo, like what about the people that feel, claim to feel good, feel the best of their entire lives, eat almost no carbohydrates, probably have cold handed feet, but they, they feel good. Would you say that there's some kind of, some kind of issue going on that they can't see or that there will, there will be one like down the line or, you know? Yeah, sure. I mean, a lot of people get the idea about me that I'm that I, I haven't researched paleo or I haven't researched low carb or I, I haven't read Gary Taubes or something ridiculous. Like I've read everything. <laughs> um, I'm not saying I'm all knowing, but I've certainly researched this topic of health and nutrition and you know <laughs> carbs and no carbs and all this stuff as deeply and as vastly as anyone I know of and experienced a lot of it myself because I'm not one to sit on the sidelines and just kind of theoretically look into something, you know, of course I tried it too. 
Um, but anyway, I, I get this, you know, people think that I bash paleo and bash low carb because I'm just ignorant and I haven't read the research on it, which is nothing could be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so going into that, I would say the best six months of my entire life was that first six months I was on a low carb diet. It was so good that I wrote a book about it and started telling everybody that I could about how great it was, like many people do, right? Mm-hmm. I was fully convinced that I had found that, that I, the, the wheel had been reinvented and everybody needs to know that this whole thing about the food pyramid and all that stuff is a lie. And really fat is the ultimate fuel source for human function and you know, you should eat mostly fat with some protein, maybe a little bit of starch every now and then with uh, some vegetables and absolutely no sugar, of course. Sugar is the one thing everybody can agree, agree upon is this toxic substance. So that's where I was at and this, the first six months were the most incredible six months of my life. And then I started feeling not as great. I started having some signs and symptoms that things weren't, weren't going so well. At first, I, I started waking up with all this energy, more than I'd ever had in my life at 7 o'clock in the morning, right at sunrise. And I was, wow, I've had trouble getting up my whole life. I feel great. This is incredible. And then, you know, that became 4 o'clock in the morning, and then it was 3 o'clock in the morning. And then it was waking up at 2 and not being able to go back to sleep, and it was dark circles under my eyes and pimples and... Um, and then my libido started to crash, and then I started to get some pimples, and my hair was falling out a little bit, and man, my breath and body odor wasn't so good, and geez, my digestion was horrid, and uh, you know, if I ever you know, broke the diet and had a candy bar or something like that, I'd get pimples all over me, and I grew up my whole life eating candy bars, never having any pimples, so what the, the heck is going on? So anyway, at some point, you know, I clung to it for a long time, trying to figure out you know, what went wrong. I, I just tried to paleo harder, right? But, you know, ultimately I had to face the fact that, that you know, I, I must have gone through some kind of honeymoon period. So I started writing about the, what I call the catecholamine honeymoon. Catecholamines are basically stress hormones that are, they give you a certain level of euphoria when they're surging through your system at high levels, kind of like what you experience when you're you got a rocking coffee buzz going. Uh, they reduce pain. They increase your energy and alertness. They make you feel like a superhero. I mean, obviously, everybody knows somebody's rocking some hardcore stimulants like cocaine or something like that. They start to feel like they're superheroes. So I felt I felt amazing. I thought I was invincible, and then you know, all the, all the bad signs started coming in, but I started writing about this catecholamine honeymoon, which is basically where and a lot of things can induce it. Calorie restriction, carb restriction, uh, doing a lot of exercise. Lots of things can induce this high ad- adrenal hormone state, basically a very stressful state that makes you feel kind of alert and elated. Um, the word euphoria is repeated a lot of times in, in reference to the, uh, the biological effects and psychological effects of high levels of glucocorticoids, which are you know basically our stress hormones, and 
I was just running on a stress hormone high and I felt great. And then that's a short-lived kind of thing and, and there's nasty repercussions for that. And I, I can't say that I can't say that I've fully even <clears throat> recovered a hundred percent of the function that I had before I did that low carb phase that I stuck to, I'd say for about three years. So, you know, I kind of fell in love with that first six months and try to get it back, but I never could. So I see people all the time, six to 12 months going on a new diet, not just paleo, but you see just as many vegans doing the same thing and talking about how great it is. Mm-hmm. And eventually those people years later, almost always, and I've followed enough blogs and enough people to know this, they almost eventually all return to the midline. Almost all vegans eventually come out and say, guess what, guys, I'm starting to eat some, some grass-fed meat now, or I'm, I'm thinking about going paleo. And then you see everybody in the paleo community saying, oh, well, you know, I ate some potatoes, and actually I feel better. And I started eating some fruit, and I feel even better, and, and that kind of thing. So it's, it's just things are not static. What makes you feel good today may not make you feel good six months from now. I see so many people saying, oh, this is the best the best diet in the, the whole world. I'm going to do this the rest of my life. You know, like Diane Sanfilippo, who's a huge icon in the paleo community, uh, wrote one of the best-selling books in all of the paleo community with uh, Practical Paleo, the cookbook. When she first started doing a paleo type of diet, I read on her blog in the early days before anybody knew who she was, she said, this is the greatest diet I'm going to eat this way for the rest of my life. And I was thinking, well, <laughs> that's how I thought too. But I had to adapt as my body changed. And anyway, years later, she's complaining of energy problems and going to see a lot of holistic practitioners to try to figure out what's wrong after not eating carbs for years. And you just see this kind of thing played out again and again and again in all sects of, of extremism in the dietary and nutrition and fitness world. So anyway... I'm not going to take anything away. If if people feel great eating a paleo diet, then that is just great. But make sure you're making an assessment of your metabolism and how you feel and make sure your hands and feet are nice and warm and your bowels are flowing and your sex drive is great and your sleep depth is awesome and your mood is stable and that everything is working properly. I don't care what anybody on the face of this planet eats as long as they are functioning properly. But ultimately, um, I just see many people who do paleo and then who cut their carbs running into that metabolic black hole and starting to suffer some problems. So if you're eating a diet like that, you should be aware that that could happen to you or that it may have already happened to you and that you may need to stop even if it worked and made your health problems, your chronic asthma go away or your arthritis or whatever kind of problems you had go away if you're suffering in all those different areas now, it's time to make some adjustments. That's mm-hmm. my that's that's enough on that topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have this one girlfriend who is. I mean, she, I'm not going to say too much, but she's not technically paleo, but she's extremely low carb. I mean, very low carb. Like once a week, she'll have 
a couple banana chips, like dried bananas. And she was trying to sell me on the idea. And she had said something about Thanksgiving Day. She was eating Thanksgiving meal with her family. And she said she just slept through the entire day. She was like, oh, it's great. I feel wonderful every single day. I mean, and it was kind of in a bragging way. It was like, I, I just, I mean, like Thanksgiving Day came and I mean, my body is just so adjusted to low carb that after Thanksgiving meal, I just passed out and slept for like six hours and everyone went home. Like I woke up and everyone was gone. But I mean, I was so excited the next day to get back to my low carb. And I was thinking like, this is not attractive. Like I, I just like, I don't know. I, I really want to be awake on Thanksgiving Day and join in on the, the tradition and the fun and I don't know. I'm just so tired of running into obstacles with having to pack Tupperware and having to schedule my bedtime at 10 o'clock because I'm so tired by, you know, 8.30 that the last thing on my mind is becoming ketone adjusted to where I can't even enjoy Thanksgiving meal. But I know, I mean, that's different for everyone. That's just her specific story. And uh, like you said, if low carb works for somebody, then like more power to them. And I've seen some some pretty awesome things happen for people that go low carb, but I just know personally it's just too limiting for me. Well, like I said, even if it works, let's say you're 340 pound diabetic and you go on a paleo low carb diet and you lose a bunch of weight and you feel better, it doesn't mean when you get down to 180 pounds and you're feeling fit and you're exercising and you feel great and you're out cycling 60 miles a day that you should still be on that same diet that did all those great things for you initially. It could be doing great harm to you in this different physiological state that you're in. And it may be time for some carbs. True. That doesn't mean that, you know, so it's all, everything is always changing. Uh, there's hours of physiology lessons in what you just said about Thanksgiving, and I bring, I bring it up a lot. Because what happens when you are running on stress hormones, and you're just, obviously, I got so much energy, and everything's just going great. Um, you know, you're sort of whipping your adrenal glands. And what happens is when insulin goes up, the glucocorticoids go down. Gluco is in glucose. The glucocorticoids, when we're under stress and we're, in an, uh, we're not fed, they rise to deliver blood sugar. So they make blood sugar go up. Insulin rises when we eat to make blood sugar go down. So those are the, the two primary hormones that make blood sugar go up and down. And what happens when you're not acclimated to eating carbohydrates like that or, and you're just running on stress hormones, your body is looking for anything to take a break and have a nice siesta from having to run on stress hormones all the time. And so the more strung out you are on stress, the harder you crash when you do something that de-stresses you. Another analogy that is almost exactly physiologically identical is what happens when you sleep four hours a night for a week and you're all strung out and stressed and then you finally on a Saturday get caught up on sleep and you feel like you've been run over by a bulldozer all day the next day. That, that feeling like you run over, you're run over by a bulldozer all day, that's healing. Okay? You feeling uh, manic and hyper and spastic all week long while you're not getting enough sleep and you're under super amounts of stress and you're feeling that euphoria from just being busy, 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 go, 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 go. That is destroying. That's where the destruction occurs. And the restoration occurs when you feel kind of tired and lousy. So I am glad that your friend had Thanksgiving dinner. 
because <laughs> it was probably much a much much needed break for her adrenal glands. Yeah. <laughs> to feel tired and sleepy all day, which people think that's a bad thing, but it's a necessary part of the component for all the using up you do and all the energy that you have and the running around that you do and the working out that you do and the stress and busy life that we have and all the thinking, thinking, thinking that we do as we click, 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 click. Um, you know, we really need to balance that out with lots of lazy lounging, not thinking about anything, alpha brainwave state where we're just kind of vegged out and not doing anything. People think that's bad, but that's necessary. It's like saying a baby is not healthy because it sleeps 12 hours a day. It's like saying a tiger is unhealthy because it sleeps 18 hours a day. You know, it's okay to rest. We rest less than any creature on earth. Mm-hmm. We actually get less sleep than almost every other mammal. Already as it is. And we have the busiest minds, I can guarantee that. So, anyway. Um, again, hours and hours of interesting conversation about that kind of stuff. But I know you got some more questions. So. <laughs> okay. Um, well, speaking of stress... What about cardio? What are your thoughts on, I mean, your anti-stress? So the, the girls that are in the gym doing like an hour on the treadmill in the a.m. before they eat breakfast and then coming back at night, is that, is that metabolism hindering as well? Would you say to stay away from cardio? Well, I came up with a saying recently that <laughs> I've, probably been, I've probably been overly self-congratulatory about um, and it, because it's so awesome, which is, Exercise makes a sick person sicker and a healthy person healthier. So if you're, you know, stressed out and beaten down and worn out, underfed, and basically sick, if you go and do exercise of any kind, it's going to make you worse. Mm-hmm. If you're healthy, you're in a uh, healthy metabolic state, and everything works properly, going out and doing a, a workout cardio or otherwise, it doesn't matter what kind, any kind of exercise, it's probably going to make you healthier unless you do too much of it. And then <laughs> again, just like anything else, it's that sweet spot. Too, it's so hard too to much find. Of a good thing. Yeah. Moderation. It's like really lost in this health generation. I feel like, well, you know, everybody's familiar with the, the word dose or dosage. And I like dose and dosage applied to exercise. I think it's appropriate. The right dose is too little is, is not a strong enough dose. Too much is dangerous. The right dose is very effective and, and works. And the, the appropriate dosage is always changing depending on other circumstances, like how much sleep you get and how much you're eating and how much stress you're under. So it always needs, again, you have to be in touch with your body's biofeedback. You can't just follow a set program like a, like a robot, like a machine because our needs are variable and they depend on all these other factors. And it's one of those things. If you don't feel like exercising, you better not be doing it. Mm-hmm. If you do feel like exercising, you better be doing it. There's a lot of people, there's just as many people who feel like exercising, but they're too glued to the computer or their video games or whatever to actually go out and do it. And there's people who are tired and worn down and beat up who need to take time off, but they just push harder in that state. So again, it's, it's all about dosage. It's all about balancing it with rest and recovery. The same could be said about everything, but we have a a, a machine, a system, our bodies are, they're not static. They have ever changing needs that vary on an hour, minute to minute and hour, hour basis. So we have to be flexible. We can't let our brains 
decide everything. We have to let instinct take over a little bit. And, you know, when we're thirsty, drink. When we're hungry, eat. When we feel like resting, rest. When you feel like exercising, exercise. And try not too hard to go against your body because that's where people run into problems. Hard work. You know, you can achieve great things with hard work, but health is not one of them. I don't think hard work is what makes people healthy. I think there's, they run a lot of risk of getting their body to revolt and actually trigger the exact opposite adapt- adaptations that, that, you know, that actually work against the goals that they're trying to achieve. Um, anyway, to ask your, answer your question also about cardio, I will say that I, I do think it's a huge problem in our modern culture that we spend so much time just sitting around doing nothing. It's unhealthy to be in that posture, in that position for so many hours. Um, there's a lot of people talking about how we should do, you know, sprints and, and you know, short, high-intensity weightlifting workouts and stuff like that. And everybody's looking, seems to be looking at how they can reduce the amount of time that they spend exercising and still get great results. And I, I think that is fundamentally flawed, too, because I think... You know, you live close to Boulder. I used to live in Boulder and up in the mountains. And, you know, people who are out hiking and kayaking and rock climbing and mountain biking and doing all these things and skiing and snowboarding, the level of health and vitality that they experience compared to the rest of the the country is there's a profound difference. It's night and day. And... It's, it's, you know, we should be actually out active and doing things and going on a hike or a backpacking trip or doing all these things. Yeah, it's cardio. But if you're doing it and having fun and you're not working too hard and not doing it for exercise, but doing it because it makes your life better than just sitting around, it's just, it's different. So I don't, I don't want to discourage people from exercising because I think exercising is great. It's just important that they're in the right state to do it. And, you know, it probably is a good thing to balance out doing a lot of cardio and hiking and mountain biking with a little bit of weightlifting and, you know, stuff like that. But again, I think one of the big problems in our society in general is that we view exercise as a chore, Mm -hmm. something that we work towards to achieve a goal. And it just, it shouldn't be that way. You don't have to tell a kid or even your, your family pet you don't have to motivate it to go work out. All you have to do is grab the leash and walk towards the door. And the dog is ready to go out and play and exercise. And if you were spending all day outside, it would be running around playing all day. So I think it, we've really created a, an environment in our modern culture that is really causes us to be way more sedentary than we would otherwise be. And that's a whole separate issue, and it's aside from anything metabolically related. But uh, it's an interesting one. Yeah, I will say since I moved to Boulder, I have been outside a lot more than than I have been in the past six years. Just because I have I have so much natural beauty, and when I lived in Austin, Texas, I mean, we st- it was still beautiful, but I, I, there was there was the lake, which was on a boat, which was still nice. You got a lot of sun, but then there was just traffic. I mean, that city is just packed with traffic, and here uh, there's just hiking, there's mountain biking, there's kayaking you know there's camping and I've been doing a lot of rock climbing and it just feels it's just so different it's a different kind of exercise because I really I mean I look forward to weightlifting I love weightlifting but to be able to move in such a intuitive way and 
to work muscles that I haven't worked in years by, and like challenges. Like I actually climb indoors, funny enough. I mean, it is indoors. It's a really great gym, but <laughs> it feels real. And the stones, I mean, the rocks, not the stones, the rocks are um, very challenging. They have a lot of challenging courses, but it's been really great for me to do that at least twice a week and to get up on the ropes and just challenge myself in a different way. And instead of waking up at six o'clock in the morning to go do sprints, which I actually hate, by the way, to anyone listening that sees those posts where I say AM sprints. I really don't like it. So (laughs) focusing my attention from those sprints to the rock climbing wall has been really good for just my, my soul, my mind and my body, obviously. And even, even, even the godfather of stress acknowledges that, that your, your frame of mind about anything that could be stressful or perceived as stressful makes the difference between that being sort of eustress and distress. And he uses the phrase it's, uh, that how you take it is, makes all the difference. And yes, if you're out playing, you're building up lactic acid and you're breathing heavily and you're exercising and it's cardio. When you're out playing ultimate frisbee, you're hiking, you're doing rock climbing, and you're, you're activating the it's, – it's the exact same stress when you're on a treadmill inside of a gym – but the mentality surrounding it is totally different. And one is fun. And you're secreting all, you know, it's, you're happy having the time of your life. And one is drudgery and it's work. It doesn't feel good. And, and you know, I, if I do an hour of cardio indoors every day, I start to break down and feel terrible. But I could, I could hike 10 miles a day and go up 4,000 vertical feet every day, seven days a week, and feel fine. So anyway, there's definitely some fundamental differences. I, I don't know. We're getting a little off track. But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of subtle little things that people don't acknowledge. And I, I don't know. I, have a, I can geek out on just about anything health and nutrition related. But mm-hmm. it's something that's uh, been on my mind a lot lately because I work so much that I just – I. I'm ready. I'm ready to unplug and go, go play, play, and, and do the things that I used to do that made me feel so great before I got into all this health stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you and everybody else, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. Okay, last question because I know we're running out of time. But um, can you just give us the cliff notes on poofas and why they are not all that great for you? Because I mean, when I first read about this, I had no idea. Completely oblivious. I mean, I've always thought. A big handful of nuts would, you know, be really, really beneficial to my body, according to all the vegans, at least. And what? you know, yeah, I, I just got into a big um, debate with this uh, about this with Alan Aragon, um, and we were talking about this. And you know, most of the research shows that if you take a typical American and you add nuts and seeds to their diet, they actually usually have uh, better health outcomes from doing so long-term. Okay, so some of their biomarkers improve. They might feel better. And, and again, if you look at a lot of the research, it, you would see that and say, well, the, those must be good for you. And I, I think in a certain context they are because we consume so many vegetable oils. Okay, for those of you who don't know, soy oil and corn oil from our big – Agricultural, agricultural commodities in the United States, 
that's where we're getting most of our oil from. And we didn't have the technology to even get oil out of these substances until about 105, 110 years ago or something like that. And that's when companies started to make margarine to displace butter. They can make it for cheaper and they could sort of displace this butter market with these agricultural products. The same with other things. But obviously over the years, uh, we've completely covered our whole country with these agricultural staples. And we use those for all of our oils. And they're really high in a different type of fatty acid called polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is that's where the PUFA comes from, P-U-F-A. And it's, it's a different type of fat, and it has a lot of different biological properties. But one of the things that happens during processing is that it tends to get oxidized because it's a little bit more um, delicate of a fat. It's more sensitive to air and light and heat. Okay, so it can oxidize and turn rancid. And what that does is produce free radicals that go around and damage tissues in our body. And any kind of nut or seed or anything that's really high in this type of fat, you'll also see a lot of vitamin E. And vitamin E is very protective. It helps prevent, we know vitamin E is an antioxidant. It keeps those nuts and seeds and all those things from going rancid. So when people eat a lot of nuts and seeds, they're taking in a lot of vitamin E, and that probably is a good way to kind of counterbalance all the vegetable oil they're eating in all their chips, crackers, fried foods from restaurants, um, everything. I mean, everything that has any kind of fat in it and any packaged food, any restaurant almost always is comprised mostly of vegetable oil. So I think it is sort of a kryptonite in a sense for um, – or not a kryptonite, but it, it, it just counterbalances – this problematic food in our in our diet. So in that context, you know, maybe nuts and seeds are good. But a lot of the research shows that eating very little polyunsaturated fat at all will yield far greater health benefits than just adding nuts to your and seeds to your diet. Um, and that a lot of the research shows that that a great deal of inflammation, and we're obviously we're experiencing a, a a huge rise in all different kinds of inflammatory disorders, asthma, allergies, all different kinds of autoimmune diseases. Everybody's saying heart disease and cancer and all these things, diabetes and obesity are all related to inflammation. And that inflammation plays a central role. Well, a lot of the inflammatory molecules that we make in our body, we manufacture from polyunsaturated fat. And our food supply used to be very low in polyunsaturated fat. And now it's really high in polyunsaturated fat because of the, the whole agricultural revolution. And it's in really rich in, in animal tissues, of the animals that we eat, because they get fed a lot of soy and corn too. So you see a lot of pork fat and chicken skin and all these things um, really, really high in, um, in polyunsaturated fat as well. So we have completely pumped tons and tons and tons of these different these fatty acids into our food supply and it, it seems to be that that's where inflammation, that's the origin of inflammation. And the more this type of food you eat, the more of the hormones you produce that, that produce inflammation in the body. We have leukotrienes and tumor necrosis factor alpha and all these different inflammatory molecules that are implicated in all these inflammatory diseases, and they're made from polyunsaturated fat. So again, um, it, you know, it's a whole different side of things, and I, I don't think, honestly... It's all that practical to really eat a, tr- a truly uber low 
poly low PUFA diet because you can't eat at restaurants and you can't eat anything really. You have to eat a weird diet and social isolation living in your apartment. So I don't think it's all that practical, but I do think uh, if we're if we're talking about society as a whole, one of the biggest, most important uh, things, changes that we could adopt in our culture is probably getting restaurants to start cooking things in coconut oil and getting people to start putting coconut oil in packaged foods instead of soy and corn oil and feeding uh, different foods to our livestock so that it doesn't build up all these fatty acids in it and we can start to decrease the amount of fatty acids like this uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids that we have in our tissues as humans because we have you know 20 times as much of this type of fat in our tissues that we used to have 100 years ago. So anyway, that's a little bit of a glimpse into that whole PUFA world. Believe it or not, that was actually the short answer. That wasn't the long one. <laughs> PUFA, that would be uh, canola oil as well, right? Uh, canola has more uh, monounsaturated. Okay. And they're, they're you know going for a little bit of a higher monounsaturated fat content um, in, in new versions that they're, they're cultivating or whatever. So canola is bad, but it's not – it doesn't have nearly as much as soy and corn. Yeah, I know that Whole Foods cooks pretty much everything with canola oil, and it's kind of sad. <laughs> I kind of would wish at least like they would do coconut oil or something a little bit healthier. Yeah, yeah again, there's a lot of uh, misinformation about saturated fat, and it's all lumped together. Um, and, and interestingly, uh, like I said, pork fat is really high in polyunsaturated fatty acids that are particularly inflammatory. And almost all the studies that have shown that there's something negative about saturated fat have been using lard. And when they use coconut oil or butter, they don't get the same results, even though coconut oil and butter have a lot more saturated fat than lard. So I think saturated fat has been maligned if you look at the, the deeper biological effects and how it interacts with our bodies and look at all inflammation and metabolism and all these different interconnected things. You see that saturated fat is actually good. And if you look at coconut oil specifically, it's just phenomenal. And the question is, why is coconut oil so good for metabolism and Alzheimer's and all these different things? Well, because it doesn't have a bunch of polyunsaturated fats in it and because they are saturated fats. So again, it, we're a long way as a society from really realizing the truth of, of the health and nutrition information that's out there and being able to implement those on a mass scale so for the time being, you know, I don't think anybody's going to be on a really low PUFA diet unless they want to, mm -hmm. like I said, entrap themselves in their apartments, which probably has social isolation has more negative, nasty health implications than eating polyunsaturated fat. I can tell you that. So I don't think it's really an option, but I do hope that there's uh, the winds of change do come along and, um, you know, we can start eating a lot of butter and, and coconut oil. As our, as our fats in the future. Not that these foods are healthy or medicinal or have special properties and that, you, you know, just because coconut oil is good for you, you should start drinking a jar of it every day. It's just that that's the type of fats we should be using when we fry stuff. And that's the kind of fats we should be putting on our toast in the morning and stuff like that. So anyway, I think that's, that's that. That's really interesting. I think you should write a book on that. Oh, yeah, because I'm, I'm not busy enough, Madeline. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to get a petition signed. Everyone that listens, please just comment and say that you want a book on this so that we can spread the word on coconut oil. I'm obsessed with coconut oil. I drink it in the mornings. I um, put it in my coffee. 
Oh, so you're you're the person who's is consuming a jar of it a day. No, <laughs> only one to two to three to four tablespoons, and I'm just kidding. I, I probably have one in the morning, and then I cook with butter, so I'm pretty balanced. Well, that's okay. You're you're okay. <laughs> um, I, I often joke that I used to. Um, when I was really into the Weston A. Price Foundation, I went to their conference. I felt like I was in competition with the person next to me in the buffet line to see who could get the most butter on their bread. You know, oh. it was like, I am holier than you. You know, I'm, I'm better than you. I eat more butter than you. Everybody has butter is the healthiest food in the world. I eat three sticks a day. Oh, God. Oh, you eat three? Well, never mind. I mean, I'm at three and a half sticks of butter a day. It's, you know, again, people hear good things about certain foods and they start immediately eating excess amounts of it. They immediately start eating unhealthy amounts of these healthy foods and... You know, at the end of the day, it's uh, the midline is good. I don't like to use the word moderation because I think it's a little bit overused. But, you know, just try to be a little bit more normal. Don't do anything too extreme. Don't do anything that your great-grandmother would think is too weird. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, my great-grandma would think most everything I do is too weird probably. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you might want to put – you wanna, might want to start passing some of these things to the, the great-granny litmus <laughs> test. <laughs> Oh, Make sure that you get funny. more approval on these things. Well, Matt, I think all of this information has and will continue to benefit so many people struggling with dieting and obsession. But I think we're running out of time. So before we sign off, can you let the listeners know where to reach you and find you online? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm notorious for giving away a lot of free information and stuff. You don't have to feel like you have to buy a bunch of my things or that if you – Put your email address in my uh, in my website that I'm going to turn around and start selling you a bunch of things. Um, you can get I have a free uh, 25 part e course on raising metabolism. So I talk about metabolism and all the things that you know we could have gotten into if we had 12 hours to speak w- uh, about it. I talk about metabolism and what causing metabolism to slow down, and t- more about these polyunsaturated fats, and more about exercise and all these different things. Um, that's a whole 90-day program that you can go through. It's absolutely free. During the time, I don't ask you to buy anything. I usually actually give away my, my books for free. Uh, every book of mine that I've written, I give away for free once every 90 days. And um, So you can get all my information for free. It's all at 180degreehealth.com, 180degreehealth, written out.com. Awesome. Well, I will also have a link to that in my website, moonfitness.net. And uh, Matt, thank you again for joining us today. And I look forward to reading the rest of your books and keeping up with all your great work. All right. Thanks, Maddie. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs>